This is L.A. Theatre Works. I'm Susan Lowenberg. Joining me now is Stephen Strogatz, director of the Center for Applied Mathematics at Cornell University. Dr. Strogatz is the author of three books, including Sync and the Calculus of Friendship, and has written a weekly column on mathematics for The New York Times. Welcome, Stephen Strogatz. Thank you, Susan. Feels great to be here with you. Proof is a play which is more about mathematicians than it is about math itself. How do you think proof handles the popular stereotypes we have about mathematicians? On the whole, I'm pretty pleased with it. I I was especially taken with the grad student, Hal, who is described as being hip, (laughs) or at least a little bit hip. (laughs) Which is not something that we associate. Right. We associate geek, right? (laughs) Yeah, you certainly associate geek. And and Hal is a little bit geeky, fair enough. But he's also hip. He's in in a rock band. It's true it's not much of a band. It's also interesting that his friends, the other math students, are described as being party animals that can drink Catherine under the table and Claire. So, <laughs> and, now that's and, actually true. I was going to say, is that accurate? That. Yeah, yeah. That I've seen some some powerful drinking in the in the world of math. That's if it's a stereotype, I don't know, but it is accurate. How is the math handled? Is it well handled? In parts, the math is well handled. I mean, some of the jargon that's used is exactly right. For instance, Robert, I think, is mentioned at one point as having done great work when he was in his early 20s on subjects like game theory, nonlinear operator theory, and algebraic geometry. Those are all correct names of disciplines in math, and those are actually areas where John Nash, the hero of A Beautiful Mind, did some of his best work. So I I sort of think that Robert is modeled after Professor Nash. In the play, Hal refers to the field of mathematics as a young man's game. What does he mean by that, and where did that idea originate? The idea seems to be that among people at the highest level in math, the people who go on to be the greatest luminaries of all time in math, it is true that many of them did their best work before they were 30, certainly, and in many cases, even before they were 25. For instance, Isaac Newton, who is often thought of as one of the two or three greatest ever, did his best work when he was 24. It's the the plague year, 1666. He was born on Christmas Day, 1642. So he was only 24 years old at that point. Another one in the same league would be Carl Friedrich Gauss, who did marvelous work actually as a teenager and then into his early 20s. So among the the very, very best of all time, it is true that they typically did their best work at quite a young age. On the other hand, I don't spend much time worrying about it. You know, I've, I turned 50 last summer. <laughs> and um, I think so few of us are going to be in that league anyway that the real question is for a practicing mathematician is the same true as it would be for one of these all-time great mathematicians. And I don't think it is particularly true. I I see people doing very nice work in their 30s and 40s. And 50s? Oh, yeah. Well, (laughs) (laughs) let's hope. Let's hope. But the one thought I'm having here is that, you know, especially in the modern era where parents, well, I'm thinking really men, share a bit more of the child rearing than they used to, it's pretty hard to find the time hours and hours of uninterrupted time to think about a math problem. You know, I mean, I think that's part of why people do well when they're in their teens or early 20s. There's not many other demands being made on them. And as you get older, you have more responsibilities and just can't put in 
the time needed to make these kind of breakthroughs, even if you had the brain power to do it. I mean, Newton, for example, never got married. And as far as we know, he never had any relationships his whole life with any man or woman. I mean, he was a really solitary figure. In the question I just asked you, I referred to it as a young man's game. Women are represented in the play by Catherine and by Sophie Germain, both of whom have had to contend with this idea of math as a man's game. What are the latest statistics on women entering the field of mathematics? The statistics are getting more and more encouraging all the time. It used to be, in practice, pretty much a man's game. I mean, Sophie Germain is one of the few exceptions. There's another great mathematician named Sonia Kovalevskia and uh, Emmy Noter. I mean, you can almost name them on the fingers of two hands, the all-time great mathematicians who were women. That is discouraging. But in the modern times, everything is starting to look up, I would say. So, for example, if you look at, say, high school students or even elementary school students, the girls do better than the boys all the way through high school in terms of their scores on tests. So there's no issue about girls being inferior to boys at math. In fact, they're probably better on average. Another thing you could look at is, suppose you don't look at the average student, but the absolute best students, the ones who are mathematically precocious. There are students who have been studied at Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, and the researchers there are interested in what makes a little math genius, and they find that, you know, if you look at kids who are only 13 years old, but who are taking the SATs, now, remember, those are aptitude tests for someone going applying to college. If you have a 13-year-old take the SAT in math, and if they get over a 700, where, remember, 800 is the maximum score, that child of 13 is said to be mathematically precocious. They're getting over 700 at age 13. Now, those kids have been studied for several decades, and 30 years ago, 13 to 1, they were boys. Okay, in other words, these mathematically precocious children, 13 out of every 14 was a boy. Only one out of 14 was a girl. That was 30 years ago. If you look at it today, it's now only three to one for boys. And to what do you attribute this, uh, this progress? That's a good question. I would tend to think that it's having to do with the lessening of stereotypes, with cultural expectations that, of course, girls can do math as well as boys. Those are interesting statistics with regard to high school students, but what happens when these kids get to college and what percentage of them actually pursue careers as professional mathematicians? That's where the story gets a bit darker, I think. The girls and the boys in high school are about equal in ability. If anything, the girls seem to be performing a little better. When they go to college, you find that it's still reasonably equal. By then, the math majors who go on to get undergraduate degrees, BAs in math, that's about 45% women. Continuing to the PhD, the number drops to 30%. So only about one out of three math PhDs are women. And then when you look at the ranks of math faculty, the number drops to 20%. Only one out of five math professors is a woman. So what's causing this attrition you know, people used to say, oh, well, girls or women aren't as good at spatial reasoning. I don't think that's a significant issue. Studies have shown that you can train people to be better at spatial reasoning. And in any case, that wouldn't explain why are the girls doing better than the boys in high school. It seems that it's something else going on. And it may be the best evidence we have is that, in part, women start to lose interest 
in math by the time they become professional or, or get trained to be professional mathematicians. And it could be partly cultural, that the math culture is a bit strange. Um, it's competitive, doesn't foster cooperation so much. And there's also the matter that women often, who are very talented and smart at math, are talented and smart at other things too. That is, they're often good writers. They're just generally smart. They're not narrow in the way that a, a typical a male mathematician might be. So these women have a lot of opportunities. They also have to start thinking about raising kids at around the time that they'd be coming up for tenure. So there's a lot of things that seem to pull women out of the mathematical track, but it is a, it's a pity. Getting back to the play, how plausible is Catherine's story, given her relative lack of training in mathematics? Are there any real-life analogs to proof? This is a really fascinating question. I wondered about this as I was reading the play, and maybe this touches on your earlier question about stereotypes, because as I was reading it and listening to it, I was thinking to myself that this is pretty far-fetched that Catherine could have solved this problem that the world's best mathematicians had not solved. Why did I think that? Was it because I have my own prejudices about women? Maybe a little bit. But I think more what seemed to me very implausible is she hasn't even gone to graduate school. I mean, this is a person who supposedly is solving this problem. She's hardly spent any time in college from what we can tell in the play. Now, that is almost unprecedented. I can't think of any cases of, you know, absolute first-rank work in math being done by someone untutored or untrained in that way, with one exception, which is there was a phenomenal mathematician from India named Srinivasa Ramanujan, who in the early part of the 20th century wrote to a great British mathematician, Hardy, and sent a number of amazing theorems to Hardy. And Hardy who was at that time one of maybe the greatest mathematician in England, wondered, what, who is this person, this clerk in India, writing to me? And he very quickly realized as he read this letter that these were remarkable theorems by a genius of the highest caliber. And as far as we can tell, Ramanujan was, was essentially self-taught you know, so it is, it is possible. You know, there is, uh, maybe this is sort of a romantic idea, but, you know, there's another young woman with no training whatsoever who is portrayed as a, you know, young genius. We follow her from the ages of 13 to 17. And that's the young girl, Thomasina, in Tom Stoppard's mm. Arcadia. And she basically develops chaos theory. So I think there is this kind of strain of romantic writing. I wonder if David Auburn was influenced a little bit by Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, which, of course, was wow. written a few that's, years earlier. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's quite possible. I know for certain that Auburn is influenced by the story of Ramanujan, because any mathematician hearing the play will recognize a story in the play which comes straight from Ramanujan and Hardy, which has to do with the number 1729, which is mentioned early in the play when Catherine's father is talking to her about how many weeks she must have lost, you know, not getting any work done while she's taking care of him. And at some point, they talk about the number 1729, and one says, yes, it's the smallest number that's expressible as a sum of two cubes in two different ways. Now, that exact conversation occurred when Hardy was visiting Ramanujan in the hospital towards the end of Ramanujan's illness before he died. And 
he says to, to Ramanujan that he came over on a taxi, which was number 1729, and he thought it was inauspicious because it seemed such an uninteresting number. And Ramanujan instantly fired back and said, oh, no, 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 it's a very interesting number, and then stated this number theoretic fact. It's, you know, it's 12 cubed plus 1 cubed, and it's also 10 cubed plus 9 cubed. It's the smallest such number that can be written as a sum of two cubes in two different ways. And, you know, Hardy was just thunderstruck. How could Ramanujan know this? It was like he knew the numbers as his intimate friends. Proof is also a play about the link between madness and mathematical genius. At one point, Hal actually says, mathematicians are insane. (laughs) Why do you think this is such a popular idea? Yeah, that line about mathematicians being insane is um, spoken, I think, at around the time of the drinking scene. But yeah, taking the question seriously or the comment seriously, there are plenty of cases, a disturbing number of cases of mathematicians who have had pronounced mental illness. So I mentioned John Nash in A Beautiful Mind where we see, and he, as it seems pretty clear, is the model for Robert's character, Mm. had um, schizophrenia from the time... He was in his early 20s, and at that time he had done magnificent work of the caliber that Robert is said to have done in the play. Uh, And he, you know, suffered through that for much of his adult life before having an amazing remission and then winning the Nobel Prize. In addition to Nash, I mean, there are many, many examples. There was the great Georg Cantor who invented set theory, who thought he could talk to God and, you know, studied the problems of the infinite. There was Kurt Gödel, the, probably the greatest logician of the 20th century, who also was paranoid and you know was convinced that people were trying to poison him. And the truth is that there are many mathematicians who have had mental illness, and there is a selection bias for people with this constellation of gifts and deficits to become mathematicians. Early in the play, Catherine's father, Robert, talks about finding complex and tantalizing messages in his everyday life. What role do intuition and inspiration play in mathematics? It's funny. People don't think of math that way. They think of math as very cold and logical and calculating. You know, where's the intuition in that? Well, when you're trying to prove something and you're not even sure if it's true, how do you come to believe in truth when there's not much evidence? You know, when a mathematician tries to prove something, if they already knew for a fact it was true, that would mean they had a proof. So we're constantly, and of course this is a big element in the play, trying to prove something or disprove it without really being sure of the truth or falsity of that assertion. So, you know, how do you get to that? Well, by having intuition. I just feel that it must be true or that it must be false. And that gives you the courage to go on and and try to seek a rigorous proof. You know, there's one aspect of what Catherine says near the very end of the play that I think is right on the money about creativity in math. And it relates to something about creativity in art that Picasso said. So when she's talking to Hal at the very end and he says, you know, what was it like? It must have been amazing, you know, when he finally believes that she really did come up with this proof on her own. And eventually she says to him, you know, it really wasn't amazing. It was um, just connecting the dots. And sometimes I couldn't really see how to get from one dot to the next, but I just kind of kept thinking about it and patching things together. And the proof is lumpy. I think she says it's lumpy. It's not elegant. I don't really think what I've done is that great. And that, to me, seems very true 
of breakthrough work in either art or science that the first discovery or the first proof, you know, the, the person doing a, a new kind of art, a new genre, it often is ugly at first, or it looks ugly because it's so alien. And Picasso has some statement about that, that, you know, that the creative act at first is ugly. It's only later that it gets prettied up by the disciples. But the initial work is such a struggle that um, you don't expect the very first creation of, of anything to be beautiful. It's going to be lumpy. Catherine describes what she did as not being elegant. And Hal makes an assertion in the play that the best math is elegant. Well, that's right. Elegance is, is our highest standard of beauty in math. It, it has a particular meaning. When we speak of a proof as being elegant, or a proof can also fail to be elegant. I mean, it's not a matter of true or not true. It's a matter of insight. That is, a proof that's elegant hits you in a different place from a proof that is merely correct and convincing. Elegant means that you can feel it in every part of your being. You now see why the result is true. It gives insight. It gives you an understanding of the essence of what's behind this fact. It gives you a eureka moment, an aha experience, whereas, I mean, people who have played with puzzles of any kind, they don't have to be deep mathematics, you sometimes know, like with, say, logic puzzles that we may have all played with as kids, that when you look at something the right way, you suddenly get it. And then you, it's satisfying. It's even it's pleasurable. It's joyful that, oh, that's why that's true. You know, that's what we mean by an elegant argument. Whereas a brute force argument, you're compelled to believe the answer, but it's been such a clunky ride to get to it. That's not satisfying. And no mathematician wants a proof that looks like that. Well, this has been just a very interesting conversation. Dr. Strogatz, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks very much, Susan. I've been speaking with Stephen Strogatz, the Jacob Gould Sherman Professor of Applied Mathematics at Cornell University. This is L.A. Theatre Works. I'm Susan Lowenberg. I'm joined now by Dr. Carrie Bearden, a clinical neuropsychologist and assistant professor in residence in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Bearden is working to identify brain-based traits that may provide clues as to the underlying causes of psychosis and bipolar disorder. Dr. Bearden, welcome to LA Theater Works, and thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. In proof, we meet Robert and Catherine, a father and daughter who share a facility for mathematics and perhaps an unspecified strain of mental illness. Based on the information provided in the play, how would you diagnose Robert and Catherine? Well, my best guess, given the way that their lives are described in the play, would be bipolar disorder. Robert has periods of excessive writing, um, hypergraphia, and Catherine, it seems, has periods where she's quite depressed and stays in bed all day, doesn't get out of bed. And these are both classic symptoms of bipolar disorder, um, the two poles, um, bipolar disorder and manic depressive illness. Bipolar disorder typically has an onset in early adulthood. It sounds like the course of what their mental illness has been. And the other thing that's interesting about bipolar disorder is that it has a very episodic course. So typically people can function very well for periods of time and, in fact, often are very high functioning. 
and then have periods where they become increasingly disorganized or even psychotic and have a complete break from reality. You said Robert and Catherine. So are you saying that Catherine's fear which she expresses in the play, that she's beginning to uh, go bug house, as she puts it, in her mid-20s, that she does, in fact, show real symptoms that replicate what her father had? That's a really interesting question. And she clearly doesn't have anything close to the severity of the illness that her father had, at least at the time of his death. She does demonstrate some of the classic symptoms, at least in terms of the depressive pull of the illness. For example, you know, sleeping till noon, feeling like she's lost whole days of her life, not getting out of bed, not caring about her appearance. And typically the depressive pull does start prior to the full-blown manic side of the illness but it does seem that she has inherited some of her father's tendencies, both in the domain of genius in mathematics as well as some of his psychological symptoms. What role does heredity play in the development of mental illness? Well, it plays a pretty large role. In fact, a history of mental illness in one's family is probably the biggest risk factor of of having a mental illness oneself. So particularly um, disorders like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia have about 80% heritability based on twin studies. And so if you have a a parent with bipolar disorder, you have a 10% chance of having the disease yourself. And if you have an identical twin with bipolar disorder, you have a 50% chance of having the disease yourself. So clearly, you know, that tells us two things, that genetics are extremely important, but also that genetics aren't the whole story. On the other side, what role does heredity play in mathematical genius? A lot less is known about that. And so we know that intelligence, as it's measured by standard IQ tests, is extremely heritable. You know, there's certainly no specific gene that's been identified that is responsible for intelligence or, you know, on the extreme ends of genius. And in terms of the heritability of something like mathematical genius, that's been, you know, I think much more difficult to study because it is so rare on those extreme ends. So, you know, certainly it is to some degree heritable, but I I think what's also been difficult in really studying that is that it's a construct that's so difficult to actually define, you know, what constitutes genius. You mentioned Robert, the father, having graphomania. Mm Mm-hmm. Clinically speaking, what is graphomania? Quite literally, it just means an obsessive impulse or urge to write. And from a clinical standpoint, we would probably use the term hypergraphia, which really uh, just means writing more than normal or writing more than would be typical. That has sort of a less uh, pejorative context than graphomania which implies there's something crazy about it, although clearly in this case, filling, you know, 100 notebooks with writing, probably graphomania would be a reasonable term to use for that. Is it more of a symptom or a condition? A symptom, I think, is an accurate way of describing that. So hypergraphia, you know, excessive writing or excessive urge to write often occurs in the context of temporal lobe epilepsy. And it's also a very classic uh, symptom of bipolar disorder. So people who are in the manic or even hypomanic phase of bipolar disorder, where not a full-blown manic episode, have these periods of excessive verbal productivity very often. And so that can manifest either in the form of excessive talking, talking very quickly, racing thoughts, and also can manifest as excessive writing.
Does Robert seem to be someone who has bipolar disorder with schizophrenic features? Yes, I would describe him as bipolar disorder with psychotic features. Of course, you know, not having actually assessed him myself, it's difficult to say. There are certain features of the illness that tend to distinguish those two things. So schizophrenia tends to be a less episodic course. So people with schizophrenia tend to remain disorganized, having these uh, psychotic symptoms, so delusions or hallucinations, basically throughout the course of their illness, unless it's successfully treated. Um, Whereas bipolar disorder tends to be more episodic, where um, one will have periods of functioning in some ways completely normally and other periods of episodes of extreme mania or, or depression. Proof also explores the idea of genius. Is there a known neurological component to what we call genius? No, the the neurological basis of genius has really proven to be quite elusive. And a great example of this is when um, Albert Einstein passed away and uh, neuropathologists were, of course, really eager to um, dissect his brain and see if there was, you know, some particular component of his brain that was so different from the average person's brain. And they concluded that his brain was fairly normal for someone of his age. When they actually started measuring different components, it did seem that his uh, parietal lobes, which is a part of the brain that's critical for visual spatial function and mathematics, um, was about 15% larger than the average person's brain. And, And so there is some evidence that people who have higher intelligence do have larger brains with more gray matter, which is the brain tissue that comprises the neurons or the brain cells. And what is the specific area of the brain involved with genius or creativity? Are they the same? Have you been able to isolate that part of the brain? No, I think, you know, as I, as I mentioned, the parietal lobe is, is really important for mathematical function. But when you're talking about a construct like creativity, one of the things that makes this very difficult is that there's no clear definition of creativity and what makes a person extremely creative, because, of course, people can be creative in many, many different ways. And so the overall picture is basically that people with very high intelligence, um, high levels of creativity, this is actually a rather complicated story because people have looked at not just the brain structure, but also what their brains are doing when they're performing some type of activity, like a very difficult math problem. And so what it looks like is that basically when people who are extremely intelligent or gifted are performing a very challenging or difficult task, that their brains appear to be more energetic. They have more blood flow, and more oxygen going to the brain when they're doing these very difficult tasks. But when they're doing something that's easier, something that's you know, not very challenging, then they actually use less energy in the brain than people of more average intelligence. So it's a very complex story. At one point, the character Hal says, mathematicians are insane. Mm. What kind of traits do we associate with genius that might also be symptomatic of a neurological condition or a disorder? Well, I think the uh, hypergraphia, the, you know, filling hundreds of notebooks with writing is is a great example of that because, of course, you know, we as average people would have no idea whether, you know, is this uh, something that's ingenious that he's writing or is it something that's completely illogical and makes no sense. And so there's certainly a continuum of, you know, what is genius and what is, you know, insanity. So some of the traits 
that may be associated with the hypomanic or subthreshold manic phase of bipolar disorder are very common in, in people that are very gifted. So excessive verbal productivity, um, coming up with really exciting, wonderful ideas and wanting to communicate those ideas to people. I think those are all things that might be associated with someone who is very bright and also um, with someone who is on the verge of uh, spiraling into a manic episode. So why do you think we continue to romanticize the link between exceptional creativity and madness? Well, I think it's a fascinating issue, and I, I think probably we all feel that we have a little bit of that in all of us, and sometimes we wish we had more of that. I was going to say <laughs> that we want to have more. <laughs> right, 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 in the the positive. And it's it's a very fine line, I think, as, as is really nicely demonstrated in the play with Robert between what makes uh, something genius versus what makes it nonsense. And throughout history, there have been poets, composers, writers, so many of whom have very likely suffered from bipolar disorder. And so there is a pretty strong link between uh, exceptional creativity and manic depressive or bipolar illness. Dr. Bearden, thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Carrie Bearden, Assistant Professor in Residence in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at the University of California, Los Angeles. This is L.A. Theatre Works. 